coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy and a chilly Wednesday. And of course, now that we're past Halloween, we can start focusing on not turkey and dressing. No, we're all thawing Mariah Carey and thinking Christmas art. I'm already over this. <laughs> already over the holiday season, and it's like basically day one. It's also, by the way, uh, my mother's birthday. May she rest in peace. Uh, lost her uh, 12 plus years ago, and uh, I think about her every day, but on her birthday, I really think about her a lot because she <laughs> didn't want to celebrating her birthday, but now that she's not here, I can do what I want to, and I want to celebrate her. So uh, anyway... So just days ago, we learned in a Senate subcommittee hearing chaired by Senator John Ossoff and Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee and got testimony from two Georgia judges that spoke to the fact that the state's Department of Family and Children's Services sought the approval to detain special needs children in foster care, not having a place to put them otherwise. Shocking stuff. So I decided I wanted to speak to someone who could speak for the plight of the special needs. Joining me today is the CEO and co-founder of the New Disabled South and the New Disabled South Rising Pack, and that would be Dom Kelly. Dom, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, did you and the wife, uh, Katie, did you guys go out and do any trick-or-treating with the kid last night? We did. We live in Historic College Park, and we have probably the best trick-or-treating in all of the metro Atlanta area, so we we took our, our kid out, uh, got some candy with, with her cousins, and it was, it was a really nice time. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Uh, I was going to ask you, actually, with the the, the spate of anti-Semitism uh, rearing its head throughout Metro Atlanta and uh, throughout the state and the country as well, if there were any second thoughts about any of that. Yeah. Um, you know, as a Jewish person, it's um, it's alarming and scary, uh, the, the rise in anti-Semitism right now. Um, and you know, the reality of what is happening in Palestine and the loss of life, the, in my view, the genocide occurring um, among Palestinians on, on behalf of the state of Israel. It's really, uh, it's really painful to watch. And as someone who, you know, I work with a group of Jewish folks who we all are asking for not only a release of all hostages, but a ceasefire. Um, it is uh, is necessary in this moment. It's really painful to see Jewish grief be weaponized to uh, warrant more more death. Um, uh, so that that's kind of where I'm landing right now. It's been a really really painful time all around. It's so interesting being somebody who is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm atheist agnostic. I, I sit on the sidelines when it comes to religious uh, doctrine, religious wars, religious struggles. It's it's kind of curious to watch how so many Jewish Americans have views that evangelical Americans would be surprised to learn and, and to, to hear someone such as yourself speak in that manner. Uh, do, do, do you do you run across folks who are surprised when you take that kind of uh, positioning as well? Yeah, I think because oftentimes people equate being Jewish with a loyalty to the state of Israel. And the reality is that that is not the case for the vast majority of diaspora Jews in the world. Um, uh, I, my, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. My family 
comes from across Europe, mm -hmm. um, my ancestors, and I had, you know, I have ancestors in my family who were victims of the Holocaust, and um, we always talk about never again. And in my perspective, it's never again for anybody. And so when we talk about Jewish values, Jewish values tell us to repair the world. They tell us to treat people with with kindness and that that um, harming people goes against what we're taught in Judaism. And um, I consider myself pretty agnostic as well, but those Jewish values, um, I think, cut uh, across religious views where they're just kind of human values. And mm. so um, to, to me, it is uh, it, 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 violence, war, genocide is never excusable. Um, and uh, and so as a Jew, it, to me, it squares directly with with my values. That's a fascinating response. I, I think about that often, and, and I see so many similarities in uh, conservative uh, Israeli politics and conservative American politics, where there seems to be this notion of uh, an adherence to a religious doctrine, and yet at the same time, just a quick trigger when it comes to flexing military might and uh, Katie bar the door when it comes to if anybody's in the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, for, from my perspective, I, I keep having to reshift how I talk about this because I don't believe it's a war. Um, I think we're, we're talking about uh, we're talking about a nation state with an enormous military power. Um, and we're talking about a people who have barely any infrastructure, have been living under occupation for decades. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that is where the conflict is. It's not, a, it's not a war. It's a, it's an active, an active genocide being done in the name of Judaism. And, um, and so I think when we frame it like that, uh, hopefully it, people can kind of open their eyes to this is disproportionate and, um, and a ceasefire is actually the most humane thing that we can be calling for in this moment. And honestly, there's some on the fly educating going on as well for some for myself, uh, for example, I mean, I'm, going to be 50 in February, and it was just days ago that I learned that actually the uh, infancy of Hamas was actually something sort of pursued by the then Israeli government to take out the PLO because they didn't get along with the PLO. Mm -hmm. I don't know, just, yeah, just fascinating stuff to learn uh, throughout throughout the, you know, this opportunity to, to kind of learn what's happening in the Middle East. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning every day, too. Um, and it's, it's really, I think, important for everybody to, you know, it's easy on social media to get caught up in misinformation and, you know, emotions and really to take a step back and do the research. And there's scholars who have been studying this for a long, long time. And the realities of the situation and the plight of Palestinian people is really, really clear. Yeah, and, and I see, I've seen a lot more demonstrations uh, in support of the Gazan civilian, the, the Palestinian civilian uh, in the streets of America and in the streets of Europe. And I've also, to me, that's sort of been heartening. But at the same time, you see from a lot of the pundit world where they're, they're quick to label that as pro-Hamas demonstrations. And, and I caution people against, you know, uh, falling back into that 50s era McCarthyism with, with this broad brush. Does that, does, do you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think what I will say on the one hand about where this is coming from for a lot of Jewish folks is that we have this real trauma that we hold, um, yes. that we carry in our bodies around the Holocaust. Yes. And yes. so with the real rise of anti-Semitism in this moment, and also, you know, really since before Trump was elected, um, you know, we've, we've seen this pretty blatantly. Um, and I think that that's where 
the fear comes from for a lot of Jewish folks. And, and then more broadly, I think it's really unfortunate to to paint, you know, are there some people who might be pro-Hamas? Sure, there might be. There's there's some people who believe all sorts of things. Um, I I think conflating being anti-violence, um, yes. pro-ceasefire, um, with and and, and pro-Palestinian liberation mm. with being pro-Hamas, I think is really, um, it, in in my view, it is Islamophobic. It is. It is dangerous rhetoric um, and and inaccurate, um, completely inaccurate. And and much like I think the the the, the Israeli muscle flexing militarily, I just don't think it it brings us to a, a tangible, peaceable solution any faster. No, it doesn't. And I don't. I don't think the you know it, it, Israel just took uh, credit for the bombing of a refugee center and like I this is this makes. This makes Palestinians less safe, obviously, mm-hmm. and it makes Israelis less less safe. And I, I I know people in Israel who are actively begging their government to 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 stop um, because this is not this what, what the state of Israel is doing is not helping defuse any situation is not helping anybody come to any sort of resolution here. Um, and so I think that that's what most people of conscience are calling for. Like, let's just have let's cease fire and have have a humanitarian pause here and figure out what what we need to do to find a solution here but this killing people is not is not keeping anyone safe at all so the whole point of my actually inviting you to the show has nothing to do with that but no i i I just you know any chance i I get to to speak to somebody who uh, is uh, a jewish american or or has any ties to to judaism and and then like i said just just knowing how how you are, are are empathetic to the plight of the uh the palestinian i like to to give room to that because i just don't think that there's enough conversation uh given or opportunity given to have this conversation from that point of view so yeah. I, I really wanted to scratch that itch a little bit and i really appreciate that and and also to be clear like i'm not just empathetic i am pro palestinian liberation i am fully against the occupation and and fully in favor of Palestinians having the opportunity to, to be fully um, autonomous and have have their their own liberation, freedom of movement. That's so critical, and so that is firmly where I stand. Well, I appreciate that. Listen, uh, the reason I reached out to you was because we had revelations in a Senate subcommittee hearing just days ago. John Ossoff, our senator, and uh, Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee co-chairing this Senate subcommittee hearing where we learned some shocking things about the Georgia Department of Family and Children's Services seeking to detain special needs children. Uh, Dom Kelly joining us from the New Disabled South and New Disabled South Rising Pack, and we'll ask him his thoughts on those revelations and more when the Ron Show returns here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Wednesday. I am on with Dom Kelly, who is the founder and CEO of the New Disabled South and New Disabled South Rising Pack. Dom, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. I reached out to you a few days ago when we were getting word out of the Senate subcommittee that John Ossoff and the odd couple, Marsha Blackburn, were co-chairing. And we had two Georgia judges testify to the fact that the State Department of Family and Children's Services had actually sought to be allowed to detain special needs kids in the system in youth detention facilities. I was, my heart just sank when I read that. What was your reaction? 
Same. I mean, my heart sank. And also, I unfortunately um, was not surprised by it. This is, I think, indicative of a much larger issue in this country um, around how we treat children, especially disabled children, children who are in the foster care system. Um, It is I don't even want to say it's broken. I think it was intentionally set up this way. Um, yeah. It's working as intended, but um, we we do not treat people with disabilities as whole, equal members of society, and that includes kids. We kind of use kids in society. We prop them up as inspiration, you know, if they quote unquote overcome their disabilities. But in terms of getting kids what they need in order to thrive, especially kids who are in the system, there's no investment in that at all. There's no prioritization of doing more for our for our kids, especially those who have more complex medical needs, anything like that. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, there would be any sort of thought to throw them into a detention facility um, because for, and unfortunately, I believe it would probably cost less to get kids what they need in order like rather than throwing them into a detention center but that that's not how we think um that's not how our government thinks it is but let, let's do the thing that's the easiest and and the less work um and and also goes back again to just not truly caring about children especially those who have who have more complex needs we're with the co-founder and ceo of new disabled south and new disabled south pack dom kelly to tumble on that last time i had you on you you dropped this statistic on me that it just resonates. It still has a ripple effect going on in my mind water now uh, that upwards of two-thirds of those imprisoned in this country suffer from a physical and or mental disability. And to me, there can be nothing more cruel than to throw a child with special needs into a detention center, especially if they are perhaps not of a sound mind enough to even understand what's going on. It's just it's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. Yeah. It is. Um, and, you know, I, I think that I, I, I am someone who is very firmly on the side of Dorothy Roberts, who calls for the abolition of our foster care system mm. um, and the not only the abolition, but you, you, we have to rebuild a system that actually cares for kids. Um, and that's not just disabled kids. That's black and brown kids who get caught up in the system. Right. Um, and and you know, we, we don't do enough in this country to really look at the issues that lead to incarceration, to, that lead to quote unquote crime. Um, if, if we actually did that, we would have less people who are in our carceral system. But unfortunately, th- this is the, exactly the type of thing that leads people to to actually be caught up in the carceral system as adults um, when, mm-hmm. when we throw kids in detention centers because they um, might be developmentally disabled or have a mental health disability or because they may have you know, committed a small crime or something like that. We, we, we throw them into the system and that, that doesn't help with their outcomes. And so when we, when we don't fund and prioritize the things that actually are proven to cut down on crime, then um, this is what happens. I, I liken this in a lot of ways to an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. And actually, we could even kind of dovetail that into the Israeli-Palestinian plight as well. There are enough Israeli citizens who never have to see 
the plight of a Palestinian struggling in Gaza or the West Bank. And, and in this country, we have enough Americans who don't see the struggle that someone who is going through uh, a battling a disability or even just being impoverished has to go through and the struggles that the system has in, uh, erected before those folks to overcome those obstacles, to uh, you know, become a competent citizen and contribute, uh, you know, to to our society in general. Uh, it just again, it just seems easiest to put them in a facility that we out of sight, out of mind, and it's not a problem anymore. But but that problem doesn't just go away. But that just seems to be the easiest solution. Yeah, well, that that's, that that goes back in you know long into history, especially with disability. We we had ugly laws on the books here in this country where um, that really actually put disabled people in institutions to be out of sight, out of mind. Mm. We didn't want to look at them. Um, you know, I, I have a disability called cerebral palsy. Even 50 years ago, I would have been institutionalized, um, especially if if my family didn't have the means to care for me. Um, the way that they that we they did growing up, like I, I would have been thrown into an institution, and that's and we still throw kids into institutions to this day. Mm. There are there are thousands of kids waiting for waivers through our Medicaid system to be able to receive care in their homes, and in the interim, they're either put in if their parents can't care for them, um, or their parents you know can care for them but they can't work. A lot of times, people are thrown into nursing facilities a lot of times they're forced to if you're an adult waiting you're forced to live in the er um so it still is sort of this this um mentality of institutionalization first um and even though we have supreme court uh a supreme court case olmstead that was born right out of here in georgia um that was supposed to end institutionalization of disabled people we're still doing that because it's much easier for the people in power to just throw us away rather than actually address the issues. I would argue it, we, we might be doing worse service now. I mean, not that institutionalization was, was fantastic, but, but lumping, lumping folks with special needs into a prison population, to me, is just cruel and unusual. Yep, absolutely. So speaking on that, uh, I also wanted to ask you your thoughts on uh, the Georgia GOP's push now to broaden its cash bail program. By adding, you know, even misdemeanor offenses like trespassing, you know, uh, to to the cash bail system. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 disgusting. Um, we adding more crimes to uh, to the list of things that you have to be able to have financial means to 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 um, you know get out of jail. Like that that is um, that is further criminalizing things like houselessness. It's further criminalizing mental illness. Um, it, it, you know, I, I am someone who fully believes that we should end cash bail. Um, we, we have a history in this country of criminalizing poverty, and that's exactly what this does. And I think about the disabled folks, especially those with, with mental disabilities, who are caught up in that, who um, disabled people live in poverty at twice the rate of non-disabled people. So if you are somebody who can barely put food on your table, if you don't have a roof over your head, if, you know, any number of things that one might be experiencing, especially, which is exacerbated if you have a disability, you're going to get caught up in that system. You, you may, you may steal some food because you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. And then you have to figure out how to come, come up with thousands of dollars to get, to get out of jail. I mean, that is, that is a system that is working against the people who really need help the most. Um, so th- this is not, 
to me, this this is cruelty for cruelty's sake, and and it does nothing to actually improve crime, to actually uh, to actually change any of the circumstances that people want to change in this in this regard. It reminds me of an old saying. Uh, I'm trying to remember who coined it. Where basically the, the thought basically was, you know, being poor is expensive. But I I would add to that, being poor and having uh, you know any sort of uh, disability or special need is is even more so. Oh yeah. Absolutely. It is it is extremely expensive. And oftentimes folks with disabilities who are receiving, you know, social security, um, disability, if they're receiving Medicaid, um, they have asset limits that they're not allowed to have a certain uh, any more than a certain amount in their bank accounts, which actually precludes them from doing things like getting married because their spouse's income would result in them losing their health care, um, situations like that. And so oftentimes you're having to spend more money to, uh, you know, to get access to basic things. Um, you know, the, it, so it, it is extremely expensive to be poor. It's extremely expensive to be disabled. And when you couple those together, it's, it's, it's a wonder how anybody is able to actually live, especially now with how expensive everything is. Dom Kelly, co-founder, CEO, New Disabled South, New Disabled South Pack. I want to thank you for the time joining us today to discuss these heady issues, all of them, <laughs> today on The Ron Show. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at Ron Show ATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Uh, my thanks to Dom Kelly from the New Disabled South, the New Disabled South Rising Pack for joining me on... Uh, Pretty somber discussion about the plight of the special needs child, especially those in our state's foster care system. By the for its part, the Department of Family Children Services is not happy with the blowback that they are getting. In fact, they uh, sent a letter to Senator Ossoff, uh, basically stating that they're disappointed that that Senate subcommittee hearing turned what they say is political. Uh, Maya Prabhu, Catherine Landrigan at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. With that story, we'll share that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Um, the lawyers for the state's child welfare agency sent a scathing letter to Senator John Ossoff on Tuesday calling a Senate investigation he's leading into Georgia's foster care system a political endeavor. The Senate Human Rights Subcommittee, chaired by Ossoff, uh, as well as uh, Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee, uh, examining alleged abuse and neglect in the state's foster care system. The subcommittee has held two hearings, one in Atlanta last week and one in Washington, D.C., and has revealed several revelations, including an internal audit from the Child Welf- Welfare Agency showing the state failed to properly assess risks and safety concerns in 84% of cases that were reviewed. Now, Senator Ossoff teamed with Senator Marsha Blackburn and announced this entire inquiry back in February, which... The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as quick to point out, was prompted in part by an investigation by the AJC uh, in late 2022. So here's some of that letter. The misstatements, omissions, and failure of the subcommittee to request relevant information or responses from the department in advance of its publicized hearings and press conferences leave the unfortunate impression that the goals of this investigation are political. That's what the state's lawyers wrote in this letter that they addressed to Senators Ossoff and Blackburn. I, how is that political? You've got a bipartisan, I mean, Senator Blackburn and Senator Ossoff agree on very little. They come from two different parties. 
How, how is this political? Uh, anyway, back to the uh, AJC article. The letter responded to a press conference the senator held on Friday, as well as several points made by witnesses during their testimony at the hearings. One witness has testified under oath that the number of Georgia children in foster care is approximately 11,000 and rising. So <laughs> the state's lawyers took exception to that. Uh, I'll have you know it's 10,464, so not 11,000. And actually, the one point they would like to make is that the number is actually shrinking and not growing. Okay. So that is down from 14,202 in 2018. DHS also responded to findings that Ossoff made public on Friday that 1,790 children in the care of the state's Division of Family and Children Services were reported missing between 2018 and 2022, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The agency said it was not given the analysis beforehand, denying state child welfare officials the opportunity to understand it or respond. They also, by the way, according to this article, played the but we're better than other states game, pointed to a recent federal report that found Georgia's rate of foster children reported missing is lower than its neighboring states of Tennessee, Alabama, and South Carolina, less than half the rate of a number of other states. They also pointed to how seriously they take uh, missing children by pointing to a 14-page memo that their employees are tasked with utilizing. The AJC is quick to point out, however, that the letter the lawyers wrote did not explicitly deny the one key allegation that was made at a subcommittee hearing on Monday. The DHS commissioner, Candace Brochi, asked judges in August whether they'd consider extending a child's time in detention while the state tried to find a placement for them. As the article cites, such a move, one judge testified, would violate the law. These children have complex behavioral and mental health needs, and some have criminal backgrounds, making them very difficult for the state to place in a foster home. The judge said this is the same population of kids that the state has had to place in hotels or even office spaces. Instead, the article states, the state in its letter said the testimony that was presented was lacking, quote, critically important context and accuracy about what Brochi, who oversees DFCS, said to the room of judges in August. The letter quoting, Commissioner Brochi did not encourage judges to violate state law, and it has never been DFCS policy to punish a child with complex needs through detention. That is a uh, non-denial pushback of sorts. Uh, by the way, the article's very next line. Additionally, one judge alleged that during the meeting, one of her fellow judges brought up that the law specifically prohibits detaining a child because of a lack of a more appropriate facility, and DHS counsel indicated the law could be changed. Skimming further down the article, I see where maybe now I can understand why someone in the, by the way, law firms based in Boston and Washington, D.C., representing the Georgia Department of Family and Children's Services. Why is that? Uh, anyway, I can sort of see now why they might think that there's some political motivation here. So the director of the DFCS, who we've mentioned before, Candace Brochi, is a, quoting the article here, close ally of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who could challenge Ossoff when he runs for re-election in 2026. I just have to ask, however, why are... Why is a letter from attorneys based in Boston and Washington, D.C. for a state agency crying politics to a Senate subcommittee chaired by a Democrat and a Republican? 
that who, who's even looking for that? That's not for, that's not the reaction we should be having. We should be having a reaction of we look forward to testifying before this subcommittee as well and clearing up any misunderstandings or misconceptions and leave it at that. Don't 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 play the political card. We're talking about children. We're talking about special needs at risk children here in foster care who are not being well taken care of. If those were parents not taking care of kids well enough, we would want a system to prevent that kind of bad parenting, right? You can't then have the system be bad parenting and then complain, oh, that's just politics. They're just complaining because it's politics. Uh, what? This is like, say, say you've got a divorce, uh, a divorced couple uh, and the, 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 the woman, the mother is claiming the, the father is neglecting the kids. Oh, she's just bitter. That's really kind of the same. Well, at the end of the day, let's get the facts right. What's happening? How are the kids being treated? Are they being taken care of? Are, are, they, are they being housed? Are they being clothed and fed? Are they safe? Not, oh, they're just being bitter. Don't play that. We're talking about the kids here, y'all. Uh, by the way, speaking of legal maneuvers, we just found out, I just saw the tweet from Democracy Docket. Uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says in a court filing that he will not seek an immediate pause in a decision striking down the state's congressional and legislative maps and ordering fair districts for 2024. The state still, however, intends to appeal the decision. They're just not going to seek a stay, meaning the special session set for November 29th, <laughs> it's November, y'all, that's 28 days away, uh, will still happen. You should recall, I would assume that uh, U.S. District Court Judge Steve Jones uh, ordered last week that uh, the General Assembly come together to create a fifth majority Minority Congressional District located in West Metro Atlanta to ensure adequate representation that reflects population growth during the past decade. By the way, you hear this all the time with the ascendancy of Marjorie Taylor Greene. What, what, what can be done to mitigate Marjorie's hold on that? Actually, this will probably uh, only strengthen her grip on that congressional district. And honestly, at this point, is it, wouldn't that be best case scenario? I mean, you know, you know, she's jockeying to be the vice presidential ticket mate for Donald Trump. And she did say <laughs> while in uh, New Hampshire uh, a couple of days ago that she's not exactly not considering a presidential run herself. No, keep her, keep her in Congress in the uh, Northwest corner of Georgia. Actually, it, it would look like if you're going to create that fifth majority black district in West Metro Atlanta, that you're probably lumping in some, and I'm sure these folks would be thrilled about this, some Cobb County uh, and uh, lumping in with uh, Douglas County to create that district and then freeing them from being a Marjorie Taylor Green constituent. So good for them. What I'll be looking out for, I mean, don't get me wrong, that some some help at the congressional level for some fairness is welcome. It would be nice to see 10 of 14 districts in the state being competitive as opposed to, was it five, four, was it three in uh, 2022? No, what I'm going to be looking forward to seeing is a fairer map at the state legislative level for state Senate and the Georgia House. Incidentally, a little behind the scenes, let me pull the curtain back a little bit, a little show note here for you. 
I have been put in touch with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office, and it's my understanding, anyway. And and by the way, thanks to uh, Austin Rhodes, uh, conservative radio host down in Augusta, Georgia, who uh, I give plenty of grief to, but uh, also uh, stay in touch with. He put me in touch with their office, and it's my understanding, anyway. There's been a little back and forth uh, text discussion about having Secretary Raffensperger on this show. Very much looking forward to that. I got a lot of questions to ask him, and I'm sure he'll eat his Wheaties that uh, morning and be ready to answer them for us. Uh, Speaking of the Secretary of State's office, uh, Gabriel Sterling, the the CEO of the Secretary of State's office, is that how it works? Uh, Anyway, he he held a press conference at the South Steps of the State Capitol earlier today to give us an update on election security. I'm here for good and bad reasons to a degree. For over three years now, we have had people lying about our elections in Georgia. We have now begun to see the accountability of that take place. So yesterday afternoon, we received our first restitution check from Sidney Powell. It's a small down payment on which should be owed to the voters and the people of Georgia. It's $2,700. But the lies that she perpetrated in behalf of an overall greater lie has undermined people's faith in our systems and in our country and in their fellow Americans. It was wrong then. The tides that have come from that have continued to damage families and election workers and Georgians and Americans. We're at a point where there needs to be accountability across the board. Georgia does a fantastic job running elections. We have voted number two by Heritage Foundation in election integrity. We're tied for Colorado in election administration by the Bipartisan Policy Center. Our laws are secure. The 2020 election was the most secure election in American history. The 2022 election was more secure than that. And the 2024 election is going to be even more secure than that. And let me tell you some of the things that the Secretary has done to already achieve these goals. Okay. Um, just today, the final inspection was done by the Department of Homeland Security in conjunction with the Georgia Emergency Management Agency of every location that holds our physical equipment. That's done today. We're expecting a report on that very soon. There have been 77 completed health checks in counties around Georgia of 159. There's three that are underway right now going to 80. We have launched a brand new voter registration system, which on the series of threats is much higher than any individual BMD or machine. Jarvis has been a success so far. We are running elections in 122 counties as we speak. We are piloting a new version of our software for the Dominion Voting System 5.17 in five counties. So far, that elections, those elections are going very smoothly. Let's point that out, by the way. That is a software upgrade. Okay, so there's always software upgrades. Any of you who are on Microsoft know that. But a lot of that probably necessitated by the Coffee County breach. Just thought I'd point that out. There are, like I said, 122 counties conducting elections on state equipment right now, which we have nearly 100,000 new voters have, having cast ballots. We have launched new poll pads. The new poll pads add another layer of security because we keep everything on what is called ePulse, a separate cloud-based system than having to have 2,000 individuals around the state log in directly into our voter registration system. This office and this legislature and this governor are investing and doing every single day the necessary work to keep our elections secure. This check, if you didn't believe the three recounts, if you didn't believe the investigations, if you didn't believe the court cases, this check shows you, she says, yes, I lied. 
some of our co-conspirators have also admitted they lied. They probably did it for purposes they thought were gallant and noble, fighting for the values and causes they believe in, but you have to follow the law. This office is about following the law, doing the right thing, investing properly. We take security very seriously. We are taking the responsible steps to keep our elections secure. There are going to be those who oppose the steps that we take and they want to see failure. Election deniers have been cast out by the voters of Georgia. We saw it with Stacey Abrams. We saw it with Donald Trump's supported candidates. We saw people who said the election was stolen in the 2022 primary. They lost. The voters of Georgia rejected them. We need to move on to have elections not about stolen elections. They need to be about the values you want to fight for. Disagree with it. Have your fights over those things. We have to have a politics based in truth and accountability. This is step one. So I, I would argue that there's a little bit of a conflation with the Stacey Abrams and the MAGA movement and that Stacey's argument has all along been that there are obstacles for people to get to the polls as opposed to the MAGA movement, which just completely denies the outcomes of the elections after folks have voted. Uh, but I digress. Uh, there's about six more minutes of Gabriel going on that talks about how the election workers' lives have been changed irreparably, et cetera, and so on. I will give you this entire, in fact, it came from WAGA Fox 5. I'll give you this entire video in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. One more segment when we return on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Wednesday. Again, I want to thank Dom Kelly from the New Disabled South and New Disabled South Rising Pack for joining me earlier today to discuss some heady issues. Israel, Palestine, the Department of Family Children's Services looking to, air quotes, detain in youth detention centers uh, at risk special needs kids who are in the foster care system as well. <sighs> We're also, by the way, learning more and more about our new Speaker of the House. This is kind of a back vetting, this is backwards vetting. We keep learning. More stuff about the guy who's already gotten the job. This is like the the, the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, right? Wait, we we just weren't in who? Yeah, uh, our new Speaker of the House uh, was once the dean of a Christian law school that never actually came to be. And I know that sounds kind of weird, very uh, Trump University esque, maybe. But actually, Trump University did exist. This law school that Mike Johnson was going to be a dean for never came to be. Now, I used to live in Alexandria, Louisiana, by the way, uh, for about five years. Uh, Alexandria isn't like the rest of Louisiana, I would say. Shreveport has lots of fun casinos. It's very cosmopolitan. It's not far from Dallas. So it's it's kind of big city-esque, you know? And then you've got all of Louisiana kind of south of Interstate 10, Lafayette and Karen Crow and New Iberia, all very Cajun, very culturally unique. New Orleans, of course, we know about New Orleans. And then you've got Alexandria right there in the middle. Alexandria kind of blends in with Mississippi or East Texas, or you could say it's just South Arkansas oozing down into Mississippi or into Louisiana. But I digress. It's, it's just kind of rural South. And... Uh, there is a huge evangelical population that lives in and around Alexandria, Louisiana. And in fact, in neighboring Pineville, Louisiana, right across the river, is a Baptist school, Louisiana College, which I think has changed names since then. Louisiana Christian University. Yeah, okay, I was just looking that up. Anyway, 
and and when when you when you see Mike Johnson speak and you look at him and you hear his background, he is exactly what you would expect him to be. And he once was going to be the dean of the Judge Paul Pressler School of Law. It was supposed to be a capstone achievement for this tiny college in Pineville, Louisiana. And uh, is it, it administrators boasted, uh, according to the Associated Press, that it would be an unashamedly embracing a biblical worldview from a legal point of view. Instead, it collapsed roughly uh, 10 years ago without enrolling students or opening its doors when there was a lot of infighting with officials, accusations of financial impropriety, and difficulty obtaining accreditation, which scared away a lot of would-be donors and professors and students. It's just not something that Mike Johnson talks a lot about. He also doesn't talk much about his involvement with an organization called Exodus International. And CNN is reporting on this little part of his history. Andrew Kaczynski reporting on this just minutes ago that the Speaker of the House closely collaborated with a group in the mid to late 2000 that promoted, quote, conversion therapy, a discredited practice that asserted it could change the sexual orientation of gay and lesbian individuals. The article continues, prior to launching his political career, Johnson, a lawyer, gave legal advice to an organization, Exodus International, and partnered with the group to put on an annual anti-gay event aimed at teens, according to a CNN K-File review of more than a dozen of Johnson's media appearances from that time span. A little background on Exodus International. Uh, They were founded in 1976. Uh, They were one of the uh, larger organizations part of, uh, you know, pushing the whole ex-gay conversion therapy movement uh, aimed to make gay individuals straight through some pretty suspect means using religious uh, and counseling methods and sometimes some physically and emotionally abusive methods. Exodus International connected ministries across the world using these controversial approaches. I know of Exodus International just from a personal level because my former in-laws, and I love them dearly, my mother-in-law and father-in-law went to Exodus International events uh, in the early stages of my relationship with my now ex-husband. They shut down in 2013, with its founder posting a public apology for the, quote, pain and hurt his organization caused. CNN continues, conversion therapy has been widely condemned by most major medical institutions and it has been shown to be harmful to struggling LGBTQ people. At the time, Johnson worked as an attorney for the socially conservative legal advocacy group Alliance Defense Fund. He and his group collaborated with Exodus from 2006 to 2010. Just another little something else that we didn't know about the now Speaker of the House. What is he, second in line? Yes, second in line to the presidency of the United States. All right, less than two minutes. I'm going to talk sports, so if you're not a sports person, you can tune out. Join me tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Uh, First college football playoff rankings came out, and Georgia Bulldog fans, some of them are like, wait, what? Yeah, Georgia came in second, ranked second in the first college football poll, and it's pretty easy to understand if you'll just bear with me for just a second here. Georgia hasn't played a whole lot of quality opponents and beaten those quality opponents. They've beaten every opponent they've faced. They just haven't beaten many quality opponents. Florida and Kentucky are the best, and neither of them are ranked in the top 25, whereas Ohio State has already beaten 
Notre Dame and Penn State, both of them ranked in the college football playoff top 25. So that's why Ohio State gets the nod. Calm down. As long as you're in the top four, you get to play your way through and can hoist that trophy for a third consecutive year. Also, the Atlanta Falcons decided to make a change at quarterback, going with backup Taylor Heineke, and it's probably the right thing to do, although he came in last week against a defense that wasn't prepared for him and looked good against that defense that didn't prepare for him. So it'll be interesting to see how he looks Sunday when he goes up against a defense that does have a few days to game plan for him. I actually remember when they signed him, I thought, this is actually a good uh, mentor for Desmond Ritter, giving both of them having similar skill sets. I'm not ready to give up on Desmond Ritter yet. And actually, the Falcons can't either because the free agent class coming into next year was led by Kirk Cousins, who is now out for the rest of this season and into next season as well. So that kind of makes him damaged goods. And they're not going to be drafting high enough to get a game-changing quarterback in the draft. So either Desmond Ritter and or Taylor Heineke is going to have to work for the Falcons in 2024 as well. All right, that's going to do it for The Ron Show. Sports, how about that? Thank you for letting me do that. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Show notes and more at ronshowatl.com. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.